Greetings and welcome to episode 2 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is China before China, and this is going to take us back many, many thousands of years to the era of the earliest written records. The earliest written records in East Asia go back to the year 1250 BC. We can actually date it very precisely on the oracle bones that were created by the kings who lived at a place where the modern day name of the area where these oracle bones were found is Anyang also known as the Shang Dynasty. Now we're going to get to them in a minute, but first I want to explain why we're talking about um, the East Asian heartland as China. Because if you listen to the first episode, you know that I'm not a big fan of using the term China to describe the people, the states, and events that occurred on the East Asian mainland more than 500 years ago. Or so the term obscures more than it eliminates and brings up associations with things that are going to hinder our understanding of what's going on in East Asia. Now, what is our geographical focus for this episode? Well, when you go back this far in time and you're looking at the second millennium BC, um, civilization, large complex cities with stratified labor classes where the elites use writing. Um, that is occurring only, you know, in one place, in the Yellow River Valley. Now, this is a podcast, so we can't really use maps and whatnot like I would do on a chalkboard in the classroom. But basically, you know, you have a general idea of what the East Asian mainland looks like today. Ch the actual political borders of China, uh, the PRC, look a little bit like a rooster. Um, the rooster was much, much smaller 3,000 years ago. Um, there are two major rivers that you want to visualize in your mind on the East Asian continent. They both flow from west to east. There is no major north-south river in China, um, which would uh, lead to the impetus to create what was known as the Grand Canal, an artificial waterway going from north to south um, during the Tang Dynasty. Um, but basically, these two west to east rivers you have in the north, you have the Yellow River, and in the south, you have the Yangtze River. Um, and in the north, the Yellow River is where we're going to be seeing the origins of a literate civilization first appear. Now, what part of the Yellow River is the most important for this? Well, in the, the Yellow River has this part in the middle of it where it sort of bends up into this horseshoe-like shape. And it's within this horseshoe area where a lot of the early development of what we now think of as Chinese civilization, from which most of the rest of East Asia is going to re receive an infusion of ideas, culture, institutions, writing that they're going to adapt for their own purposes. Uh, but basically, it's occurring in this Yellow River Valley. All right. You know, if you think of where Beijing is today, we're talking a three to four hundred miles southwest as the bird flies from Beijing. All right. Um, along the reaches of this Yellow River Valley. The provinces today, Shanxi, Shanxi, Henan, uh, Hebei, this is the area that we're talking about. Now, we're not going to be talking about the history of China or the history of the Han Chinese people. All right, We're talking about the history of East Asia as it was conceived at the time as the interaction of civilized people who referred to themselves as Huaxia, a cultural term to denote civilization, um, and peoples that the civilized people, the self-proclaimed civilized people, referred to as barbarians. Of course, if you ask the barbarians, they're you barbarians, they would have you know, their own heated opinions on the matter, I'm sure. But all we, you know, if we're looking for written records, all we have are the people who produced those records, and they thought very highly of themselves, and very lowly of the people that surrounded them and did not produce written records. Now, one thing I want to establish at the beginning of this episode is that by the end of this series, I really hope that the term China for you, if you're going to keep using the word China, um, I hope it becomes just as complex as, say, the history of Europe or the history of Western civilization. Because we use grossly oversimplified frameworks and terms to talk about the history of East Asia than we would ever use for the West. Let me give you an example. It's one of my favorite examples. Think of the Roman Empire. Think of the Romans. They occupy a very prominent place in the history of what we think of as Western civilization. Have you ever heard anyone refer to the Romans as the ancient Italians? No. 
I have never heard anyone refer to the Romans or the Roman Empire as the ancient Italian Empire. Okay? The reason you don't hear that is because there is enough of a recognition by historians that there are so many different aspects, fundamentally different aspects, to the lives and events and culture of the people who lived during the Roman Empire that it needs a separate term all for itself to capture this distinctiveness. Okay? But we do refer to the ancient Chinese without batting an eyelash. But there is just as much diversity and complexity and change over time in East Asia as there is with Western civilization. Okay? Part of the problem is this term that we have, Han Chinese, which is an oxymoron in a sense. You have two words that are supposed to mean the exact same thing and be equivalent to one another. Han basically equals Chinese. Chinese equals Han. So why do we have a redundant term to refer to the two? Why can't we refer to the Chinese? Why can't we refer to the Han? This is a product of 20th century, 19th and 20th century ideologies that were quite alien and unknown in the ancient world. Think of it as the nation-state mindset, a political fantasy that's almost never been enacted on the ground, but is still a political ideal and is talked about as if nation-states actually exist, that each people in the world, each distinct ethnic group is supposed to ideally get its own state. And then we project these, these identities back in time thousands of years and imagine that these nation-states have always existed throughout time. Now, when you talk about European history, you have a wealth of complexity to help you break it down. You talk about medieval French history. Uh, you talk about British history. You talk about the Roman Empire. You talk about the Byzantine Empire. But in East Asia, most of us are completely content to just say, China! China, doesn't matter if it's 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 200 years ago. It's all China. It's all China. It would be great. It would be so great if we could have new terms, new, very wonderfully unfamiliar and strange terms to differentiate every four or 500 year chunk of time in which we could say, this is different enough from the 500 years that are going to come after this where we need a term that reflects that difference. This is not China. This is something else. But unfortunately, we don't have that. And so it's the job of historians to try to introduce the difference that occurs in each time and place. And that's what I'm going to be doing today when we talk about ancient East Asia and China before China. Now, Think of the borders of the People's Republic of China. That's the state that currently occupies the lion's share of the East Asian continent, the landmass. All right, those borders, the borders, if you take out a map and you look at the borders of the People's Republic of China, no other state in East Asian history has ever once replicated those borders. Not once. Think of that for a minute. So what you think of as China today, the state that represents China, that is the face of China to the rest of the world, has only existed in that political form on a map for, what, 70 years now? PRC was founded in 1949. 70 years, that is it. We're talking recorded history of, you know, 3,000 years, more than 3,000 years. And yet, China, as it is seen today, has only been around for 70 years. And you could extend it well beyond the lines on a map. You could say in politics and ideology and culture and almost every conceivable aspect of the human experience. The China that you think you know today has only been around for 70 years. You could definitely say that. And yet we use the China of today and we apply it backward as if the China of 3,000 years ago shares all kinds of similar elements to it. And they simply don't. Of course there's some continuity. Of course some things stay the same, but a lot more things change. Think, for instance, 
we're going to talk today about uh, 1250 BC. King Wu Ding, the first king whose name is recorded on oracle bones. In what way was King Wu Ding Chinese? Well, he sacrificed to ancestors. Okay, ancestor worship. It's not really exclusively a Chinese thing. Lots of ancestor worship occurs all over the world. But okay, I'll, I'll grant that to you. Ancestor worship was pretty important for the next 3,000 years. But had he ever heard of the Buddha? No. Buddha's 1,200, 1,500 years away from him being introduced to East Asia. Um, Confucius. Well, that's quintessential Chinese, right? Nope, sorry. No Confucius yet. Another 700 years before Confucius is even going to be alive, much less to have his ideology take root. Many more hundreds of years for that. So no Confucius, no Buddha. Um, if you took King Wu Ding from 1250 BC and you transported him mm, into the 20th century, could he communicate with anyone who grows up in Beijing today? Absolutely not. The language changes over time. Chinese language is no exception, just like Western languages change. Anyone who speaks any European language today goes back in time 3,000 years ago. You wouldn't find a single person you communicate with. Same in China. Okay. So he wouldn't speak like anyone. Even just 500 years later, he'd be unable to communicate with anyone who lives in the exact same plot of land, uh, much less 20th century. Okay, so what else did King Wu Ding do? Oh, he engaged in brutal, oh, bloodthirsty, awful human sacrifice, the kind of stuff that would curdle your mind. Oh, sawing off the tops of the skulls of sacrifice, sacrificial victims, throwing them in the pit. Now we have gruesome archaeological images of what King Wu Ding and his successors in the Shang state, that's the name of this first dynasty, uh, did to people. So human sacrifice. Never heard of Confucius or the Buddha, or Lao Tzu for that matter, Taoism, let's throw that in there as well. Um, but he sacrificed to his ancestors. Oh, the script he used, he wrote in Chinese, right? Well, it's related. It's a Sinitic language. The characters do eventually evolve into what we think of as modern-day written Chinese. But could someone educated a thousand years after King Wu Ding in the Chinese script as it exists in the year zero, for example, if he got a hold of these oracle bones that King Wu Ding or his shamans were writing on, could he read those oracle bones? No. Could anyone who grows up in Shanghai or Beijing today and has a college education, could they read the oracle bones? No. Not unless they had specialized training many years in which they're basically learning a foreign language. All right. So all this is just a long roundabout way of saying that life was really, really different 3,000 years ago. And I refuse to call it China or to refer to the Anyang kings, the Shang dynasty of 1250 BC as Chinese. It's just, it's not a useful term. It encourages you to make linkages across thousands of years of time that do not deserve to be linked. All right. Now, how many states and empires are we talking about on East Asian history on the mainland? Okay. We're talking about, according to one scholar, uh, maybe 80 significant states and 10 empires. All right, a state, the difference between a state and an empire really just being a matter of size and diversity. An empire encompasses many different peoples who are culturally distinct, linguistically distinct. And they're all together in one state. And there's some sort of supranational ideology and glue that brings them all together. Whereas a state is just much smaller. And you may only have one type or a small handful of types of different people who live in that state. All right, it's a matter of scale and diversity. All right, 80 significant states in maybe over 3,000 years, 10 major empires. All right, and they are radically different as well. As I said, some of those empires, many of those empires, about half, are ruled by what we would now think of as non-Han peoples. Of course, they wouldn't have thought of themselves as non-Han peoples because the very term Han 
didn't even exist. So, we're going to recognize change over time. I'm sure you've heard the phrase 3,000 years of Chinese history. Sometimes it's 5,000 years of Chinese history. I've heard 2,000 years of Chinese history. There's many different ones. It's amazing what a wide range there is uh, when people want to talk about uh, how many years of Chinese history they are. This is, these are, these are long, largely propagandistic and tourist nonsense. All right, You want the most accurate statement of what we're talking about when we talk about civilization in East Asia and how far back it goes? The only accurate statement is to say that there are 3,250 years of recorded civilization in East Asia. And that takes us back to 1250 BC. All right, and the emphasis here needs to be on literacy, the invention of writing, which essentially is the definition of history as opposed to prehistory. And in the Chinese language, the script, the word that even describes whether you're civilized or not, is in its English translation is actually to literize to make someone literate. It's not civilized. Civilized has an emphasis on cities, on urban organization. Uh, the Chinese counterpart for civilization, for culture, Wanhua, is to transform through writing, through education. All right, so that puts the emphasis even more on the appearance of writing in 1250 BC. It also underscores how civilization, the idea of who's civilized and who isn't civilized, was not tied to a race. No one was talking about, oh, there's this Chinese people, they're a distinct race, and only they are civilized. And the only way you can become civilized if you're not Chinese is to assimilate into the Chinese racial group. No, 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 no. Civilization in East Asia was about acquired literacy. And of course, acquired literacy has nothing to do with genetics. Anyone can learn. Anyone can become literate. And then when you become literate, you learn about certain rites, practices, rituals, and customs you're expected to observe and follow. And then you're described as civilized. And as we talked about in the first episode, the term for, civil, for a civilized, a cultured person in ancient East Asia was huaxia. Hua Xia literally means, if you take the two characters of Hua and Xia, it literally means something like fluorescent and grand. Right, it doesn't mean Chinese. All right, the fluorescent and grand people, that's how they referred to themselves when they said, well, we're the most incredible, superior people that have ever existed. Uh, we are the fluorescent and grand group, essentially. All right, don't think of Hua Xia as China. Don't think of Huaxia as Han. A Turk or a Mongol or a Manchu could and did claim Huaxia status because it was an acquired status. It was something that you learned how to become. Furthermore, you could lose Huaxia status. Right? It wasn't indelible. It wasn't something you were a, a birthright that you were born with and you couldn't lose. You acquire the status through years of self-cultivation and education, and you can lose the status if you don't act in accordance with the expectations of this group of civilized people. And we'll talk about this in more detail in a later episode. I think a later episode we're going to say, who are the Han? And we're going to have a history of this term Han and where it came from. And we'll have occasion then to hear uh, Chinese intellectuals sort of a later date, Tang Dynasty intellectuals, Sorry, I'm going to use Chinese by default because my language doesn't give me any other way to describe, uh, you know, this part of the world. We don't have a, a Roman equivalent. I have to use Chinese, but I hope I've disabused you of the eternal uh, uh, nature of that term, the homogenous nature of that term. Uh, but we'll have occasion to see Chinese intellectuals in later dynasties who will say, there are people who look different than us, but are Huaxia because they subscribe to the ideals of civilized communities. And there are people who look just like me, i.e., we would think of it as Chinese. But I don't consider them to be Huaxia, because they don't act in accordance with how Huaxia people should act. Not only that, the term Huaxia usually did not include the lower classes. When, when, when people talked about who are the Huaxia, 
They were the civilized, educated people, the elites, essentially. All right, the lower classes typically were not included in definitions of Huaxia. How could they be? They weren't educated. They were illiterate. They didn't have the luxury of spending time learning how to be included in this community of self-proclaimed gentlemen. Now, there are other terms that we need to be familiar with. Zhongguo is the other term. That's usually the most common shorthand phrase for China today. Uh, the term Zhongguo goes back, uh, it goes way back. It goes back to like the 6th or 5th century BC, uh, gains a lot of credence during the Warring States period. Uh, Zhongguo literally means, you know, the two characters are central and state. All right, the central states. Um, we know it was plural originally. When it was first used for many centuries, Zhongguo was plural. It wasn't singular. You'll see it a lot of times translated in a literary fashion as the Middle Kingdom today. Okay, Zhongguo meant the central states with an S on the end of that because it described all these states, many of which were very small, in the East Asian heartland um, that saw, them, saw their elites, the most privileged members of their states, as all subscribing and conforming to the cultural expectations of the Huaxia community. They read the same texts. They performed similar rituals. They buried their dead in similar ways. They used related forms of the same script, even though there was still a lot of diversity in the script, the Chinese script that they used as well. And it's only later that the term will, will uh, transform into a singular usage instead of a plural usage. But when that happens, Zhongguo will be used by later dynasties as simply an interchangeable synonym for the name of the dynasty. For example, during the Han Dynasty, 200 BC to 200 AD, the emperors and elites of the Han Dynasty would refer to our Han Dynasty, our great Han, and sometimes they would refer to it as Zhongguo. 400 years later, you get the Tang Dynasty, and they would say our great Tang Dynasty, but sometimes they would say our Zhongguo. The Mongols did the same thing for the Yuan Dynasty. The Song Dynasty did this. They all used the word Zhongguo as a synonym for their dynasty. But as you already learned at the beginning of this episode, no, one, no state has ever had its borders replicated exactly by any other state for 3,000 years. And remember, we identified about 80 states and 10 empires. That's 90 polities, significant polities. Not one was ever duplicated, replicated in their political boundaries. And yet, most of them referred to their state as Zhongguo. And as the name of whatever the dynasty was. All right, so for them, Zhongguo was an incredibly flexible term. That meant different things at different times. All right, they knew that different states were larger and smaller than their own. All right, the Manchus who ruled the Qing dynasty from 1644 to 1911, they knew that they had ruled over probably the, most, the largest and most stable empire East Asia had ever seen. And yet they too sometimes referred to their state as Zhongguo, just as often as they referred to it as the Qing dynasty. All right, so everyone knew that Zhongguo was a term that was flexible. And when the state was small, Zhongguo meant a very small state. When the state was large, Zhongguo meant a very large state. Okay, so that too is a dangerous term to simply equate with China. All right, now, we're going to see a lot of diversity over the course of these episodes. We're going to be talking about the terms that we're going to use. We're going to talk about the interactions between self-proclaimed civilized people. And they would call them the barbarians that they interacted with. But of course, the barbarians would refer to themselves in much different and more positive terms. But this is a history of the Xiongnu people, the Tabgach people, yes, the Han people, 
the Mongol people, the Hakka, the Manchus, the Khitan, the Jurchens, the Sarbi, the Turkic, the Tibetan, Uyghur, Hui, Sogdian, Miao, Tangut. These are all people whose names you probably never heard of before other than Han and maybe Manchu or Mongol because they've essentially been written out of the history of what we think of as China because China in the 20th century looks radically different than the China of 1200 BC, 500 AD, 1500 AD. And it looks so different that I don't even want to use the word China to talk about these different periods in history. We'll talk about a Huaxia cultural sphere that was extremely flexible in absorbing, I don't know, absorb is the wrong word, integrating different members of East Asia and Inner Asia, who today we would probably never refer to as Chinese, and yet they played an enormous role in East Asian history. Okay, now, let's finally, at long last, let's get back into some of the details of China before China. All right, our target, our chronological target, when did the first states start talking about themselves as members of a Huaxia civilized community? Well, for that, we need writing. And writing begins in 1250 BC, where we find the first evidence of a large, complex society using a written script to express worldly and otherworldly power relations. And that's the very specific phrase that I want to use to talk about this. Now, where do we begin? We begin with Anyang. That's the modern-day name of the town where the oracle bones and many other archaeological excavations unearthed in the 20th century, they unearthed evidence of the Shang dynasty, right? the first historically attested dynasty in East Asian history. As I said before, about 300 miles southwest as the bird flies from Beijing, right at the end of the eastern edge of the horseshoe in the Yellow River. Okay, um, now... What are we seeing when we get to the Shang Dynasty in 1250 BC and their oracle bones? Well, two things are going to separate the Shang Dynasty from everything that came before it in the archaeological and historical records. The first one, obviously, are the oracle bones. The oracle bones give us the first evidence of the Chinese script in its earliest form. It's not a form that is readily... Um, readable by later generations of people who live in East Asia. Okay. Um, but it is certainly related. It's clearly an ancestor of later Chinese scripts. Now the oracle bones, we'll get to their function in a minute. They already show signs of a developed grammar. So probably we know that there were earlier versions of a Chinese script that were lost, but were written on perishable materials. Uh, we know that there were probably writing tablets that were laced together with thong, and the material was probably wood that things were written on, or you know textiles of some sort, um, and those perished. They weren't survived. But oracle bones were made from tortoiseshells or ox scapula, much more durable. And when they were buried, uh, they were preserved for many thousands of years. So the evidence of writing that appears on oracle bones marks the beginning of recorded history in all of East Asia in the Yellow River Valley. The second thing that makes the Shang Dynasty unique is that their successors, the Zhou Dynasty, Z-H-O-U, remember this because they're very important, the Zhou Dynasty, pronounced like a cup of Zhou. When they conquered the Shang state, they talked about the Shang in their own texts as the preeminent state of the world that they had taken over and conquered. So the Zhou dynasty saw the Shang, those who produced oracle bones, as the most powerful and momentous power that existed, as far as they could tell, in all of East Asia. You know, they're not thinking in terms East Asia. You know, Asia, this idea didn't even exist back then, but you'll have to bear with me when I use some of these anachronistic terms. The Zhou said, the Zhou was going to take over from the Shang kings about 1000 BC. 
that Joe said, Our legitimacy comes from having conquered the Shang, not anyone else. They were the most advanced civilization whose degeneration and corruption we put an end to. All right. So, the Shang Dynasty. They were not the only major urban complex society that existed in this time period. There are other major archaeological finds elsewhere throughout East Asia that suggest that just as materially sophisticated societies uh, had grown up and existed and flourished elsewhere in what is now East Asia and Central Asia as well, um, but who simply never produced, for whatever reason, an independent form of writing. And so they couldn't tell us about themselves. And then as time goes on, the form of writing that the Anyang kings, the Shang kings develop, will eventually be used by these other societies as well. Now let's start with the oracle bones. What is the purpose of the oracle bones, and what types of writing do they record? All right, there are about 200,000 bone fragments in the oracle bone collection that have come to light so far. They mention nine kings and 120 diviners or shamans over about a 200-year period from 1250 BC to about a, you know 1050 BC. Okay, and what they do is they are, they act as a material intermediary between the Shang king and his ancestors, and supernatural powers, of which most of them are his ancestors. All right, grandpa and great-grandpa. He's communicating with them and asking them questions. What sort of questions is he asking them? Should we go to war against so-and-so neighbors? Will my consort, Lady Howe, will she have a son? Will there be rain in the crops? And these, these questions will be framed in a positive and then a negative form. All right. Is the reason for crop failure because this and this happened? Is the reason for crop failure not because this and this happened? If we go to war with the D people, will it turn out favorably for us? And then on the other side of the bone... If we go to war with the D people, will it not turn out favorable for us? Uh, it was two questions that were fra uh, framed in opposite terms. So this bone is prepared, sort of wiped, you know, shaved clean. Um, and then the shaman, the diviner, carves two versions of that question, one on each side of the shell, a positive and a negative, and then inserts a hot poker into the shell, which creates a crack. And the crack was seen as the response of the gods to your question. And of course, you have to have your diviner figure out what do these cracks mean. That's his expertise. He's an expert in telling you what the gods are saying to you, which answer is the one that they're leaning towards. I know some of the questions were quite mundane. The king has a toothache, and he wants to know, which ancestor is causing this toothache? And then his diviner prepares the bones, puts the question on there, puts the hot poker in, the crack comes through, and the king says, oh, Grandpa Wong is causing my toothache. Well, if that's the case, then I need to, you know, perform some sacrifices to Grandpa Wong uh, so he'll stop creating this pain in my mouth. Now, most of the oracle bones seem to be a form of propaganda, although to what extent these are being shown off to other people um, is up for debate. All right, We think that a lot of them are a form of propaganda because the vast majority of judgments are favorable to the king. It's what he wants to hear. It's things that make him look good. So it seems as though the diviner is telling him what he wants to hear in many cases. Not only that, the oracle bones were then decorated with red powder. Red powder that would get into the characters that had been etched on the bones so that they stand out even more. And put on display for other people to see. We don't know exactly who else is seeing these. 
but it does appear that there was a visual aspect to them and that they were probably put on display with the intent that someone else would see that this king is able to communicate with the gods. Who were the gods? As I said before, most of them were his ancestors of some sort who would become sort of supernatural beings after they had died. But there was one god who was particularly powerful and seems to be separate from all the others. His name was D. In modern day transcription, it's D-I, D. And there was something a little bit more malevolent about D, a little more impersonal that you didn't have with the ancestral gods. And D is more powerful than the others as well. This is an important term to remember because later on, D, the most powerful god of the earliest literate society in East Asia, D will become half of the word that describes the emperor when you finally get an emperor in, 206, in uh, sorry, 221 BC, the first emperor of the Qin dynasty. He's going to say, well, I'm more powerful and I rule over a larger number of peoples than ever before. I need a new term that reflects the majesty and difference of how powerful I am. And he would, ta- and he would create the new term Huang Di. Di, the second half of that, comes from the original most powerful god of the Shang kings. So the message of the oracle bones that the king is projecting to whoever sees these oracle bones or is aware of their existence, I communicate with the gods, and the gods continually favor me. Therefore, most likely, the message to be taken away is resistance is futile. <laughs> right? Now, what can we glean about the earliest literate society of East Asian history based on the sorts of questions that are being posed on the oracle bones? Well, it's some pretty interesting stuff. First off, constant warfare. Constant warfare. With all the neighboring peoples. Okay? Along with the personal participation of the king in many of the campaigns. Scholars have gone through and added up all the days that the king appears to be mentioned as on campaign in warfare, and he could be gone for up to 200 days out of the year, more than half the year. The king was gone. And other literary evidence seems to suggest that the Shang kings moved their capital up to nine times. That's a lot. You know, most major states might move their capital once or twice at the most. And that usually because the first capital gets sacked in war. This king is constantly on the move. Constant warfare. We also get some sense of the titles, the job titles that his subordinates had. Uh, We have titles that translate into um, many dogs. (laughs) The director of many dogs. The director of many horses. It's just the person who's in charge of the stable of horses, the person who's in charge of the royal dogs, apparently, or maybe it's the dogs who are eaten. I'm not necessarily sure. We can see that the Shang state was a highly stratified society with, as I said before, frequent human sacrifice and abundant exploitation of the common masses of people. One of the sad realizations that we often have to make when we talk about the earliest eras of civilization When does history become interesting? Uh, Well, history becomes interesting usually when large groups of people are banding together in dense urban societies and creating material products and architecture that we stand in awe of even today, two, three, four, five, six thousand years later. And yet, how are these things produced? Well, usually what we're seeing is an increased ability to exploit the labor of ever larger numbers of peoples. History, unfortunately, becomes interesting when more and more people are being exploited to create magnificent works that only 1% of society actually ever saw or enjoyed. It was for them, not for the commoners. All right. Um... What sort of social categories do we see in the earliest literate society of East Asia? Well, we can identify four social categories, types of people in Shang society that are noted on the oracle bones. There is one category to refer to the elites and the royals, the royalty. And then there are three, three of the four categories, 75% of the categories that are recorded on the oracle bones are different types of dependent people 
who are defined only in relation to the labor they can provide to the elites. This will give you some sense of the power imbalance that we're seeing in the Shang state. All right. One of the categories is just the people who are under the direct rule of the king and are drafted for onerous corvée labor. Then you have another term, dependent laborers that belong to his feudal subordinates, independent lords, and they work on behalf of regional chiefs, not the Anyan king. So they had to have a term to distinguish. Are these the king's people to exploit? <laughs> or are they the lord's people, the vassal's people to exploit? It's very important to know that. That was the most important thing to the elites. Can I exploit these people or can you exploit these people? And the word for dependent laborers was jong. I'm using 20th century pronunciation for this. Uh, undoubtedly, this would have been pronounced completely different 3,000 years ago. Okay, but basically the character that is being seen here is zhong, min zhong, the zhong, if you know Chinese, um, which today is often has a positive connotation. The communist after 49 put a nice positive spin on the word uh, min zhong, zhong as masses, the drivers of human society, progress, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, way back in the Shang state 3,000 years ago, uh, zhong, the character for this, is three men laboring under the sun. That's what it is. The, the graph for this character is a sun on top, like the sun in the sky, and three human beings down below underneath the sun. It's three men working under the sun. Okay, that's where the character comes from. And then finally, another category for criminals who are no better than slaves. So, four, four social classes, one for the privileged 1% of society and three different ways to distinguish among the people that the first category is allowed to exploit. What do we not yet have with the Anyan king? So this is very important to understand. We do not yet have any narratives of history and change over time. Okay? We have writing. We have stratified society and complex wares that are being created. Large bronze cauldrons and ritual vessels. Undoubtedly, large palaces are being built as well. Um, but we don't have narratives of how things came to be. Explanations for how the world came to be. We have only a very personal back and forth between the king and his supernatural dead ancestors and sometimes the god D, in which he says, hey, did you cause my, 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 my toothache? Should we go to war? And then they'll give sort of, you know, an answer. They'll, it's kind of an explanation of how your toothache came to be. Um, but it's not the same. Okay, it's not quite the same. There are, there are no master narratives of how civilization was created, how the Shang state came to exercise power. Right, most states will put forth very much self-serving narratives of how they came to be in power. Uh, we don't see that with the Shang state. Maybe they were written on perishable materials and they had them and we just don't see them. It's very possible. But we can only work with what we have. And all we have are these Q&As back and forth between the king and his dead ancestors. All right, I commune with the gods and access their power, and you don't. The other thing that's different about the Shang Dynasty is that the oracle bones would not be known to later generations. They were used, and then eventually they were buried in big pits. And there they remained until 1899. Very late. So this is to say that the written records of the Shang period Although later generations of people in East Asia imagined that they had writing, and maybe some of the earliest generations actually had access to the perishable materials, uh, they were not aware of the oracle bones and the content that was recorded on the oracle bones until basically the 20th century. Okay, um, So a large part of the reality of the Shang dynasty was unknown for the next 3,000 years of Chinese history. Right, they didn't know about the human sacrifice, the sawing off of the skulls, the brutal nature of the regime. All right, and this allowed later dynasties, later thinkers, to imagine that the Shang were like later dynasties who didn't practice human sacrifice. Right, and that's not the case. We know that the Shang dynasty and the people who lived there were 
significantly different in many ways from later peoples in East Asia. The oracle bones and much of what passed for daily life in the Shang dynasty did not enter into educated political consciousness of anyone else in East Asia for the next 3,000 years. We also don't see any evidence of a stable system of impersonal bureaucratic government. may have existed, but we don't see the evidence for it. We just have some evidence of titles, many dogs, the director of many dogs, the director of many horses. We don't see any, any evidence of how power might be transferred, regularized. One person succeeds the next. Is there, is there any impersonal aspect to it, or is it just the king running this sort of mafia state and giving all the appointments to his relatives? Um, again, maybe it's written on stuff that, 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 that perished, uh, but it certainly isn't accessible to historians today. All this means that the Zhou state, Z-H-O-U, which arises in about 1050 BC and exercises significant power for about two to 300 years until maybe eight to 700 BC, um, gains all that much more importance in light of what we don't see with the Anyang kings, with the Shang dynasty. All right, now the Zhou state. Now, if you look at a textbook or you go on Wikipedia and you read about the Zhou state, you're going to see that the official dates are something like you know, 1050 BC to, what is it, like 283 BC. Some absurdly long period of time, 800 years. And if you see that and you don't know anything else, you're going to think, oh my God, the Zhou state, the longest dynasty in the history of you know, the world. That's insane. No, 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 no. The Zhou state was powerful for about two to 300 years. No dynasty gets more than 200 years or so of true power, true ascendancy. And when you account for the time it takes to rise and then the deterioration and consolidation, you're even talking about a smaller period of time, maybe 50 to 100 years. Right, there are reasons why the Joe state lasts so long, even after it loses effective power. And the reasons are related to some of the major innovations that the Joe state came up with that apparently the Shang state before them did not. All right, what the Joe state are going to create over this two to 300 period uh, uh, time frame, are portable models of ideological legitimacy and a sense of historical time and how things come to be. They will give creation narratives, how dynasties come to be, how kings come to power, and they'll put a moralizing spin on it. This happens because of moral or immoral human actions not just because my ancestor said yes or no on an oracle bone. Okay, and we can capture, we can recapture these portable models of ideological legitimacy on the bronze vessels that the Joe left behind in great numbers. They actually carved the earlier forms of Chinese characters on the inside of bronze vessels. Very, very durable. And these will explain why someone should be in power, why someone should be kicked out of power. And they will talk about why, why states rise and fall and change occurs over time. It confers a sense of precedent. Right, that there's a reason why things are happening. Now, the first thing that they'll come up with is what we know of in English as the mandate of heaven. And again, modern-day pronunciation of Chinese, not the pronunciation they would have used at the time. Tianming, heaven's, or, heaven's mandate, mandate of heaven. What the mandate of heaven is, is a self-fulfilling prophecy in which the winner writes history. It's the cliche we're all familiar with, but we often don't know where these ideas, where these cliches originate from. Well, the Zhou came up with one of the greatest cliches of history. The winners write history, and that's exactly what the mandate of heaven is all about. Okay, the mandate of heaven says, this is why one person, you know, the king eventually, or uh, later on the emperor, and his state, his family, rose to power. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't random chance. There's a rhyme and a reason to it. What is the rhyme and the reason? He had virtue. Again, the Chinese pronunciation for this, duh, D-E is how it's written today. Duh, that's an unfortunate pronunciation in English, because, you know, well, duh, <laughs> is what we associate it with. Anyways, doesn't matter. Virtue. Duh. Right. He who is virtuous 
receives the sanction of heaven to rule. Now, what is virtue? Well, it's not really going to be truly well-defined. Many different ways of defining what virtue is. Uh, the only consistent aspect to what virtue is, is that it has a moral quality to it. it something to do with being virtuous. <laughs> uh, sort of circular right there. Uh, how do you know which king is more virtuous than the other? Victory on the battlefield. Well, how convenient. After you win on the battlefield, the winner gets to say that heaven blessed my victory. The reason I won is because heaven wanted me to win. And the people who lost aren't able to say anything to gain, you know, against you. So, of course, whatever you said is what's going to stand. So I have the mandate of heaven because I won. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then after you win, you rewrite the history of the conquered state. Like the Shang dynasty that the Zhou conquered. As a cycle of rise and fall that justifies the ushering in of a new era. What I mean by this is, is the Zhou are creating the first explanation of how change over time occurs in the political sphere, and they're moralizing it. They say this, that dynasties come into power because a great man is very virtuous, does wonderful things, and he sees that the world is in pain and suffering because the current people in power have degenerated from their once virtuous height. They were once virtuous as well, and that's why their dynasty, the people in power, got so strong. But then they started acting in evil ways, being cruel. And now it's justified to overthrow them. And then they revolt, they rebel, or they take over. And then they explain that's why this happened. This is what we call the dynastic cycle. And this has a lot of force in East Asian history. Almost all the histories that were written in Chinese over the next 3,000 years would adhere to the framework, the literary cliches of the dynastic cycle. That, oh, the Tang Dynasty came into power because the early rulers were vigorous and moral and you know, did everything right, and they became strong, and then they de degenerated and handed power down to people who uh, were less talented than them. They became evil and cruel. Rebellions broke out, and then the dynasty was overthrown by a more virtuous person who created a new dynasty that went over the same cycle. This also helps create this insidious uh, framework of, you know, one damn dynasty after another, in which all the dynasties seem so similar to each other when they're not. But originally, this was a way for the Zhou to justify their rise to power. The Mandate of Heaven explained why the Shang could previously be the most incredible state that had ever existed, and that they deserved to be the most incredible state that ever held power. And yet, we overthrew them. We killed them. Well, how do you explain that? Well, they lost the Mandate of Heaven through immoral behavior, and we gained the Mandate of Heaven. Now, of course, all that's really happening is that one person prevails on the battlefield over the other, and then they rewrite history to justify that. But the dynastic cycle and the mandate of heaven are so useful, such useful literary and ideological concepts that integrate what I talked about in the first episode about the discourse of the great man, uh, that they will, they will be in you know, widespread use, well into the 20th century even. Also in the Zhou period, and here's the last major point we need to make when we talk about China before China, is we see the evolution towards a highly routinized bureaucracy that appointed some, not a lot, but some, and that's, that's something to note, some low-level officials to office, even though they had no blood ties to the ruling house. Remember I said we did not see evidence of this with the Shang dynasty, but we do have evidence of this. Bronze inscriptions that are showing the appointment, the investiture of people who appear to have no blood relation to the Zhou rulers, and yet they're being put into, put into office by means of a standardized, routinized oath that they take expressing loyalty to their new king. Okay, sort of this new hiring process. Um, and what we see with the Zhou 
is the beginnings of a routinized bureaucracy where the state has gotten large enough now and it's lasting over a sufficient number of generations that issues about the transfer of power have to be dealt with and they are being dealt with you're 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 creating a well-functioning bureaucracy. Well, that's an oxymoron, right? There's no such thing as a well-functioning bureaucracy, but as well-functioning as, well as you can get if you have to have a bureaucracy. The Joe State is also the backdrop against which, the chronological backdrop against which we see the production of the first permanent literary texts. We don't have any literary texts from the Shang era. We just have Q&As on Oracle Bones. That's it. During the Zhou dynasty, 1000 to 700 BC, we have the first permanent literary texts that deal with history, philosophy, morality, poetry. We can think about these as the beginnings of a literary canon around which later elites will identify a common cultural center of gravity that will lend force to definitions of who is Huaxia and who is not. When it comes down to it, the most simplest definition of who is Huaxia and who is not is who is able to read and access these literary classics, the book of documents, the book of history, the book of odes. Who is able to master the teachings, the lessons contained within the earliest permanent literary texts that are associated with Zhou rule. And we will talk about the Book of Odes in a future episode um, as one of the most important of these early literary texts that has really long staying power over the next several thousand years for people from very diverse backgrounds who we would not identify as today as all being Chinese. Now, it's for all these reasons that no one will see fit to depose the Zhou kings and overthrow the Zhou dynasty for another 800 years until that ridiculous 3rd century BC date. Why? Because there is no incentive to reinvent the wheel of government and ideological legitimacy. The Zhou were the first, apparently, to do these things. Portable models of ideological legitimacy, explaining how the world came to be and why the people who are in power deserve to stay in power. That's, that's really powerful propaganda. Why would you overthrow the people who created these models of legitimacy? That's dangerous. You overthrow them, then you, better, you sure as better have something even superior to what they produced to replace it. As most people said, forget that. We're just going to rule on behalf of the Zhou kings. The Zhou kings are pretty weak after 700 BC, but they last for another four or 500 years why? Because they're, they're important symbols. They're powerful symbols. And all the other states that look like the Joe, act like the Joe, talk like the Joe, they decide we're not going to overthrow these kings. We're just going to say the Joe are still the preeminent symbols of civilized you know, people, our community. Um, but we're going to rule on their behalf. You'll get later people who refer to themselves as a hegemon or a ba. We're not going to overthrow them. We're just going to help them. We're going to help the Joe. Oh, how nice. You see a, a parallel in Japanese history, early Japanese history. You might have heard that the Japanese have this, you know, supposedly unbroken, long, continuous line of emperors. Um, and yet the emperors were almost always weak. They were weaklings. It's only for the first couple hundred years, you know, middle of the 7th century to the 800s or so, that the first emperors of the Heian period in Japan are actually powerful. From about 8 or 900 AD until, really until uh, Hirohito um, in the 20th century, the uh, vast majority of emperors are almost entirely helpless, have no power whatsoever. But almost everyone says, I'm going to rule on behalf of the emperor. I'm not going to overthrow the emperor. Overthrowing the king, the emperor, who goes back, who, 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 who symbolizes continuity with the very beginnings of our civilization. You're opening yourself up to criticism. You're opening yourself up to a counterattack, to hearsay, king killer. You don't, you don't do that lightly. 
you just say, well, king, emperor, these are just titles. I'll take another title. I'll be a hegemon or I'll be the shogun who just rules on behalf of the emperor, but I'm not going to actually kill the emperor. Good God. Don't give my enemies any more excuses to fight me than they already have and band together against me. So the Joe, I often think of it, scholars sometimes refer to these sorts of states as charter states, states that set the template, political, ideological, cultural template for later states that followed in their wake. And from about, you know, 1000 BC to 200 BC, the Joe were the charter state, the template for all other peoples who wanted to think of themselves as members of this civilized community and wield ultimate political power. You did that on behalf of the Zhou. Uh, the next charter state is not going to be until the Han Dynasty, the Han Empire in 200 uh, BC. So we'll conclude here um, today, our topic, China Before Chi- uh, China. Before China. Uh, episode three, we're going to start uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about East, Ang- East Asian languages and scripts. Uh, get ready for a lot of um, observation and insights that uh, if we think of Japanese, Korean, and Chinese as these three homogenous languages that go back to the mists of time, uh, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. I uh, look forward to uh, having you join me then. Mm-hmm.